We're reading this morning from Second Chapter, Second Samuel, Chapter 11. And just to help my eyesight, I've actually printed out a little bit bigger. So, <clears throat> what a great introduction, Pam, that has been to this stage of David's life. So, beautiful songs, uh, and it will introduce us to a difficult period in David's life and um, a growing experience for his relationship with God. So let's read together 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and the besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab and the city, sorry, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob Basheth, 
Didn't a woman drop an, up a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And this is his precious word. Great to be with you this morning. Again, uh, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, just to put into a little bit of context, uh, this term we've been studying the life of David in First and Second Samuel, um, looking at what it means to be a person after God's own heart. And the last time, uh, last Sunday, we sort of very briefly touched on, on this incident in David's life. Uh, we'll go into a little bit more detail today. Uh, the week before that, however, we were over in chapter 7, where uh, we saw God's promises to David and, uh, and David's prayer of praise and thanksgiving. And so today we're in 2 Samuel 11, so I'm mindful that there's a few chapters that we've sort of uh, jumped over. And um, just so just to, I guess, just to fill in that context, chapter 8 and chapter 10 are kind of around primarily concerned with David's victories, um, some more battles. Um, chapter 9 is a beautiful chapter of the grace of God, and rather than sort of going into that, I've actually just written a small little piece in the, the weekly view on chapter 9, so I encourage you to have a look at that. And, uh, and then chapter 11 is where we find ourselves today. Well, the infamous story of David and Bathsheba is, um, is kind of marks the end of the golden age of David's reign as the king of Israel. And sort of up until this point, it's just been a significant rise of, uh, of success after success. Uh, the only sort of incident that has occurred that's sort of been negative up to this point in David's life is, um, is the, the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem and where Uzziah was, was killed, uh, the Hittite. But, um, but other than that, we've just seen nothing but um, the blessing of God upon David's life. However, from 2 Samuel 11 on, it's sort of a downward spiral of, uh, of David's life and David's reign. And for the next 10 chapters, the author details not only the, the sin that David commits, but the consequences of that sin that both affect David personally, his family, and indeed the nation of Israel. And clearly the author has given so much time 
uh, to this particular occasion in David's life to, sit, to send a warning to the readers or to the listeners of this passage that sin has significant consequences. And uh, as God's people, we need to be really uh, careful with how we um, go about our lives and particularly when we find ourselves in powerful positions, how we use that power is so important. A helpful way of sort of coming to this text and thinking about it is the different interactions that David has with different characters in the text. So it obviously starts with David and Bathsheba, but then we have a significant um, interaction there with David and Uriah, as well as David and Joab, uh, the military um, sort of leader. And then uh, right at the end there, we have Yahweh's displeasure with David's actions. Um, Yes, this story is about David and Bathsheba, but as we saw last Sunday at a deeper level, this story is primarily about David and power. It's also about David and control, David and sin. And as those who come to the text this morning, there's an element of David and us. What does this text say to us? What does it mean to us? And finally, as we've sort of looked at and considered every week, how does this text point us to Christ? Because Jesus, uh, sorry, David is like a messianic figure in the Old Testament who foreshadows the person of Jesus. So how does this text point us to the person of Jesus? Well, there's so much power in David's life at this point in time. Chronologists suggest that at this stage in David's life, he was anywhere between 45 and 50 years old, which means that he'd been reigning for potentially up to 20 years. We're told that David was 30 years when he began to reign in Judah. He reigned there for seven years. And so it could be potentially he's reigned for another seven or or even 13 or so years in, in Israel as the United Kingdom. David has significant experience as Israel's leader now. He is kind of at the peak of his power and he has so much power in a whole range of areas. Just as I've examined the text, here are a number of categories or areas where we see David exercising power. David, first and foremost, has positional power. He is the king of the whole nation. David has spiritual power. In 2 Samuel 23, 1, David is referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel or the hero of Israel's songs. As we know, David wrote 73 of the 150 psalms. Um, David led the Israelite people in worship and therefore had a very significant spiritual role over the people of Israel. He had political power. He had unified the northern and the southern kingdoms. He had military power and just to um, help us understand this, in chapter 8, on two occasions the author writes, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So wherever, any kind of battle that David and his men engaged in, the Lord gave them great success. He had incredible military power. He had experiential power and by that I mean he wasn't a new or a fresh king. He wasn't new into office. He had a lot of time and experience as a leader. And with increased time and experience comes increased power. So he had incredible power from an experiential perspective. He had geographical power. The city of Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel. 
And then finally, he had residential power. The, the way that the palace was actually built on a hill meant that David was able to look down on all of his people. And even in the incident with Bathsheba, we see David looking down from his roof. David has effectively, at this point in his life, become a power unto himself. David's power, however, finds its match in the power of Bathsheba's beauty. And there is absolutely no excusing the way that David treats Bathsheba. But I think it's worth noting that an incredibly beautiful woman has a lot of power in that beauty. And we see here that that beauty undoes David. We see here that David was unable to control his own power and he became seduced by the power of another. You see, before David was seduced by the beauty of Bathsheba, he was seduced by the power that he had. David was used to getting what he wanted when he wanted it. And on this occasion, he took that too far. This text is certainly about David and power, but it is also about David and control. In this text, we see there are various situations and people that David can and does indeed control, but there are equally people and situations that David cannot control. Firstly, David is able to control the messengers, those who he sends to find out about Bathsheba and indeed to bring her to him. Obviously, he exercises control over Bathsheba. He exercises control over Joab, instructing him to secure the death of Uriah. And we can see that as David hides up or covers up his sin of adultery by committing a far greater sin, the sin of murder, David is for a period able to control the short-term outcome of his um, shameful deed in abusing Bathsheba and taking advantage of his role as king. But David loses control first and foremost over himself. He was unable to keep himself in check. He was unable to control his sexual urges and his desires. He's unable to control the pregnancy. There's nothing he can do about that. He tries to cover it up, but it's out of his control. And when people with a lot of power lose control, it takes them to some very dark places. And we see that's what happens here with David. He can't control Uriah. And clearly, again, the author compares and contrasts Uriah with David. In Uriah, we see a man who has incredible self-control and self-restraint. We see a character who puts his own personal integrity before his own personal pleasure. However, with David at this time, we see a man who puts his own personal pleasure ahead of his own personal integrity. Uriah is the one person that David cannot control and he ends up losing his life as a result. 
David cannot uh, control the long-term outcome that will result from his actions. And the subsequent 10 chapters will demonstrate that very clearly. And David cannot control the displeasure of Yahweh over his actions. This text is about power. This text is also about control. Thirdly, this text is about sin. It is about David and David's sin. And I think the first thing to say is don't ever be surprised at what you are capable of. You know, we've spent so much time learning about and reading about this incredible man of God. A person who is called a man after God's own heart, and he is, and he is all of those things. But David is also a very broken, fallen man, as are we. There's a few hints in the text that alert us to the fact that this sin doesn't just happen or didn't just happen in a vacuum. Epic, significant failings don't just happen randomly. They happen because there's a sequence of things that lead down that slippery slope. And the first hint is found in verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And the first thing to note here is that David was at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was in an environment that was absolutely ripe for this situation to take place. All of the able-bodied young men were gone. (laughs) And David was not exercising his role as king as he should have been. And he was probably at home and he was bored and he fell into temptation. So the first sort of um, clue in this text as to why this sin happened was David controlled, he was actually in control of his environment and he allowed his environment to be one that led him into this sinful situation. Um, Back in chapter 5, we also read another piece of evidence that highlights the slippery slope of sin. It says, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. Clearly, David had disobeyed God's teaching about marriage. David had not learned to control his sexual urges and temptations and had taken complete advantage of, uh, of a number of women. And so we can see here that whilst David exercised great power and great control and great influence over many different areas uh, in his rule and reign as king, the area that he was unable to control and retain a sense of restraint over was the area of sexuality. This is not a new story for men who find themselves in powerful positions. We hear about this all too often, don't we? Sin of this degree, as I mentioned, does not just happen in a void. There is a slow fade, and we certainly see that happening with David. 
David goes on to, com- to break three of the Lord's or God's Ten Commandments. He covets his neighbour's wife. He commits adultery with that woman and he ends up murdering the husband of Bathsheba. This is a man who knew God's word inside out. He knew exactly what he was doing. That he had come to a place where he was no longer seeking God. He had come to a place where he, he was so powerful he'd become a god unto himself. Sin is a slippery slope. And as I mentioned a few slides ago, we need to be careful. We need to be so careful thinking that, oh, this couldn't happen to me, because it can. It doesn't start with the affair and the murder. In fact, it starts with the mind. It starts with the thought process. And in this text, we kind of see this cycle, the cycle of thoughts which lead to words, which leads to actions, and then the manifestation and the reality of those actions. So David saw Bathsheba. There was nothing wrong with that. He couldn't help that, although he perhaps shouldn't have been in that environment. But David saw, he allowed what he saw to become lustful thoughts in his mind. And as he thought about those thoughts, he spoke words and he said to his messengers, go and see about Bathsheba. And then through the words, that led to an action of her coming and him committing adultery and abusing her, abusing his position of power, taking full advantage and then as we see the, the outcomes and the reality of that. See, sin starts in the mind. And the Apostle James writes about this. He says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Sin begins in the process of thinking. And James says, if you actually allow that thought to become words and then deeds, you're giving life and growth to sin, which will end up leading to death. The Bible has a lot to say about how we control our thoughts. Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A powerful prayer that we would be wise to often pray, asking God to reveal if there are thoughts, evil thoughts that we are dwelling upon that will end up leading us down dangerous paths. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Philippians 4 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such 
things. The Bible has a lot to say about our thinking. You know, this story is probably closer to us than we think. It is an ancient text about an ancient king who committed adultery and and murder thousands upon thousands of years ago. And in one sense, we could read this text and think, well, that's, that's David, that has nothing to do with me. That's just not true. You see, when we look at David's life, yes, on one hand, we see this amazing, incredible, godly man. A person that we can look at in, in so many areas of his life and, 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 and see as exemplary. As someone who modelled the goodness and the glory of God. But equally, the author does not shy away from revealing to us David's shadow side, his, his dark side. And David is equally a broken and a fallen and, and a shameful and a sinful man. He's both. And you know what? You might do a lot of good and even great things in your life but you'll also do some really terrible things and you'll think some things and say some things and do some things that are really displeasing to Yahweh. At the end of the day, David and each of us are a blend. We're a blend of the good things, but we're equally a blend of the bad things. And sin, my friends, is... Sin. You know, you might sit here and think, well, David committed adultery. David committed murder. That's fine, but I haven't done that. And I would never, ever do that. But don't be so quick. Because Jesus came in the New Testament. And he was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's as if he just pulled out a massive spanner. And he kind of just threw it. And he said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And a little little further on, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her and his heart. It's not as far away as we think it is. And sin is sin. We might have a scale of really bad sins and sort of small sins, but the real difference between sin, ultimately, from an earthly perspective, is simply the consequence. Those really bad sins will end up having really bad consequences. The really small sins, their consequence may not be as significant. But the fundamental problem with sin is that it separates us from God. And no one is exempt. It doesn't matter how big or little the sin is, it separates us from God. And that is the problem. That was David's problem and that is our problem. No one is exempt from sin and sin separates us from God. It creates a chasm that we cannot cross. So there's no point trying to point the finger or compare ourselves because we all stand before God guilty of sin. How can David 
who committed this great sin be called a man after God's own heart? Well, over the next couple of weeks, we will talk about this very question. But the reason that David is called a man after God's own heart actually has nothing to do with his greatness or his failings. It has everything to do with his humility. When David was confronted about his sin, he humbled himself. And as he says in Psalm 57, when he was at a different time in his life, when in fact he was fleeing from Saul and was exercising incredible integrity and uprightness of heart, David says, Oh God, have mercy on me. David understood his place before God. He was a sinful human being and God is a holy God. You see, to be a person after God's own heart has nothing to do with how good you are or how bad you are. It has everything to do with your heart posture towards God as a sinful human being. And when we can have the humility to say, have mercy on me, O God, I am a sinner. God looks upon that person upon that heart with favor Jesus told a parable about this very story it's not the righteous one it's he who beats his chest and says God have mercy on me a sinner that is why David is considered a man after God's own heart Because apart from this episode in his life, he understood his place before God. Finally, this passage speaks to us about David and Messiah. You see, David, in his role as the king of Israel who unites the kingdoms, who shows no Um, guile towards his enemy remember Jesus said father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing on so many occasions David could have retaliated against his enemy Saul but he didn't David leads the people of God in worship he trusts in God implicitly for most of his days There are a number of things and characteristics that we observe in David that foreshadow the person of Jesus. But as we see today, at the end of the day, David is inadequate. David ultimately fails. David is not the perfect Messiah. Indeed, no one apart from Jesus is the perfect Messiah. And so David, in his brokenness and in his failings, proves his inadequacy. And that points us to Jesus, the perfect Messiah. The Messiah who did not abuse his power and control ever. 
but used his power and control to take a towel and to wash feet. Men and women of God, do you know this Saviour who washes feet? This is our Messiah, and he's David's Messiah too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this very sobering text, this story of David's life that highlights to us the capacity that even those of us who claim to be followers of you have to sin and cause great damage in the lives of others. We acknowledge God before you this morning that we are broken, sinful people and we come before you as a holy God who has come to us in the person of Jesus and made a way to cross that chasm that separates people from God. We thank you for the cross and for our Messiah, Jesus. And Father, I pray this morning that we each might be humbled in heart, in spirit and in attitude to join with David in Psalm 57 by saying, O God, have mercy on me. Lord, would you have mercy on us? For we too are great sinners in need of a great saviour. And we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.